1 John, chapter 2 to chapter 3, verse 14. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the Righteous One. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. We know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. Whoever says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar, and the truth is not in that person. But if anyone obeys his word, love for God is truly made complete in them. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. Dear friends, I'm not writing you a new command, but an old one, which you have had since the beginning. This old command is the message you have heard. Yet I'm writing you a new command. Its truth is seen in him and in you, because the darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates a brother or sister is still in the darkness. Anyone who loves their brother and sister lives in the light, and there is nothing in them to make them stumble. But anyone who hates a brother or sister is in the darkness and walks around in the darkness. They do not know where they are going because the darkness has blinded them. I'm writing to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, dear children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God lives in you and you have overcome the evil one. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. Uh, not said hello, my name's Matt, Matt Fuller. Be, uh, be lovely to uh, meet you afterwards. No doubt there's, uh, as has been said, one or two uh, visiting tonight. We're in the book of 1 John. We started it a few weeks ago. And uh, we, uh, here at Christ, we just love hearing God speak. So we just take a book of the Bible and work all our way through it. Uh, and uh, don't miss any bits out, because you think everything he's got to say is well worth listening to. So we've been in here a few weeks, but uh, we'll pick it up tonight. Chapter 2, verse 3. And uh, let's pray as we begin together. Our Father, we thank and praise you that you speak. You have words that you need us to hear. Thank you for this letter, John writing then to believers uh, and telling them that they are strong because the word of God lives in them. Father, would that be true of us this evening? Would it be true of our lives as well? Would we be those who know and love you, have fellowship with God, Father, Son, Spirit, and be strong in the faith because the word of God lives in us? We pray your spirit would do that work tonight. 
In Jesus' name, amen. Now, a key issue thrown up by the book of 1 John is this. Do you ever wonder, am I a Christian? Do you ever have those moments you just think, oh, look, is, is that true of me? Am I, am I a Christian? Or let me flip it around. What would you say to someone who asked you that question, who came to you and said, do you know what? I'm not sure I'm a Christian anymore or that I am. Now, how would you go about responding to them? Here's some sensible ways. You could, uh, number one, you could turn around and uh, say to them, well, look, do you believe in Jesus? Do you trust in, in Jesus? And they say, yeah. Yeah, I do. And you say, well, that's brilliant. If you trust in Jesus, of course you're a Christian. Of course God loves you. Of course you're going to heaven. Ah, oh, brilliant, they say. And then afterwards you find out that he's a criminal who traffics prostitutes for a living in Shepherd's Market. And you think, oh, uh, oops, maybe I was a bit too quick to affirm him. Oopley. Or someone else comes to you, a completely different character, one comes to you and says, you know what, I'm just not certain I'm a Christian. And you say, wow, do you obey God? Perfectly sensible thing to ask. Do you obey God? And the woman says, no, well, yes and no in some ways, yeah, but often I, I don't. Oh, oh dear. And she wanders away very sad, thinking she's not a Christian. But actually, she's just a woman of incredibly tender conscience. She is brilliant. And it just happens that morning she'd swatted a fly and felt guilty about it for no good reason at all. And actually, what she needed to go away with, yeah, 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 you're a believer. So number one, are you a Christian? Yeah, I trusted Jesus. Brilliant. But actually, he's not at all. He's a complete hypocrite. Number two, are you a, do you obey God? Not all the time. Well, oh dear, oh dear for you. But they are a Christian. So you, it's a difficult question to answer, really, the one of assurance. Because if someone comes along and says, am I really a Christian? Or if you're thinking to yourself, am I really a Christian? There are a number of other questions you've got to ask. You've got to ask, you've got to go for a little bit more information. You've got to ask a few more questions to get it right. Uh, if you, get the, you need to get an accurate diagnosis. You get the wrong diagnosis of why someone's unsettled. You'll give them the wrong medicine, and that can be disastrous. So you need to get the right diagnosis for the right medicine, the right response. Uh, before the summer, I was feeling pretty flat out. So not flat out. I was feeling pretty uh, uh, flat, exhausted, tired, uh, and um, a bit busy. So I didn't have time to go to the doctors. I thought, oh, what does Dr. Google say? Always sensible. Uh, dear Dr. Google, you don't actually write dear Dr. Google, do you? You just Google, you, here are my symptoms, here are my symptoms. It was an online doctor. And uh, it came back. We suggest you visit your GP we think from the information you've given us, you are pregnant. <laughs> now, in ways I can't begin to understand, apparently that is just about possible these days, but um, that wasn't me. That wasn't, that wasn't the issue. Wrong diagnosis, wrong prescription, oops. That wasn't going to help me. When it comes to this issue, am I a Christian? Why is someone asking that question? What is, what is thrown up? What has unsettled them? 
You've got to understand that. 1 John is a letter of reassurance. John is writing to a group of Christians to say, you are genuine believers. So he's writing to the situation, his situation, you pick it up in the letter, we'll see it uh, uh, particularly in two weeks' time in the latter half of chapter two. Uh, there's a church, or a set of churches, and uh, a number of people have a number of people had left the church, and um, uh, they were saying, hey, y- 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 I'm afraid you're losers left behind. We are more spiritual. We have got a greater anointing. We have higher spiritual experience than you, I'm afraid. So you should quit them and join us. Uh, and John is writing to this group left behind saying, no, ignore everything they're saying. You are genuine believers. You are the real deal. Don't worry about them. But it is confusing. And when there's confusion, what do you do if someone's saying, I'm not sure you're the real deal, I'm not sure, you're missing out in the Christian life. Oh, am I? It's confusing. What do you do? Well, in this section, John is giving or has given two aids, two set of questions to ask. It's one long section, chapter 1, verse 5 to uh, chapter 2. Verse 11, and it's the theme is light and darkness all the way through this section. If you were here last time, chapter uh, 1, verse 5 to 2, verse 2, uh, he would say, look, genuine Christians, genuine believers, they confess their sins and cling to Jesus Christ. Genuine believers are very content to say, I'm a sinner. And I cling to Jesus' death on the cross for me. And that's why I'm a Christian. By contrast, false believers will deny that they're sinful. They won't want to talk about sin a great amount. No, just don't like to talk about that. Okay? That was last time. In this section tonight, uh, uh, chapter 2, verse 3 to... Uh, in this section, chapter 2, verse 3 to... Um, Graham, you ready? Uh, uh, 3.14. Uh, the, the issue is slightly different. He gives a different way to distinguish true from false believers. And it's really quite simple. This one's obedience. Genuine believers obey the word of God. Whereas there may be great claims of superiority. But if they don't obey what Jesus commands, they're not the real deal. That's the distinction. And uh, we'll get to it in a moment, but it's quite straightforward how he sets it out. Now, um, so the question is, I guess, how do I know or how can I know I'm really a Christian? That's what they're asking John, we're very unsettled. There's this group that have, that have gone off, uh, and they're saying that they're the real deal, and we're sat beh- stuck behind, and we're clinging to what you told us, but they're saying that we're missing out. How do we know? Uh, John's saying, how, okay, question then, John. How can we know that we're really Christians? Let's pick it up. Chapter 2, verse 3. Chapter 2, verse 3. We know that we've come to know him. If we keep his commands, we know that we genuinely have a relationship with God, Father, Son, Spirit. We know that if we keep his commands. Now, you see, this is not mere, this coming to knowing that we know him, this is not mere cognitive knowledge. It is a relationship here, is what he's speaking about. I could stand before you this evening and say, I know Boris Johnson. 
I kind of know him. Most of you know, we all know him. He's hard not to know. But um, we know, you know, I've met him. I've conversed with him on uh, the issues of transportation systems in London. It was electric and he took all my advice, obviously not. But um, I can't, I know him. You know him. But you have no relationship with him. There's a difference. John is talking about a relationship, not just knowing. Yeah, I know God. I've heard of him and I've heard of Jesus, but I know him. There's a relationship. And John is saying here, yeah, look, if you know the love of God, if you know the love that God has for you, it changes you so that you obey him. It's personal. It's experiential knowledge. You know, in in, um, uh, John 14, Jesus says to Philip, Philip, don't you know me? You think, golly, Philip's been with Jesus for three years. And Philip could probably say, yeah, I know you. Uh, I know kind of what you like to have on your toast in the mornings. Uh, I know your favorite fish and how you like it grilled. Uh, Yeah, I kind of know these things about you. I know your favorite gags. I I know that. I know where to tickle you. You know, I know these sort of things. We've hung out together. But Jesus can still say, you don't know me. You don't actually have a, a saving relationship with me, Philip. You don't get who I am yet. See, there's knowledge, stuff, cerebral cognitive understanding uh, and there's relationship and it's the latter he's really talking about here if you know God if you know the father and the son relationally then you'll obey him now, if you hear last time, uh, John loves to give false claims and the true response. And the last time there were three false claims and three true responses. And uh, ta-da, he loves his trios. That's what we get tonight. I've scribbled it down at that little table. Uh, it's there, protector on the screen. There we go. Uh, so three false claims, and you get it three times. Whoever says, whoever says, verse 4. Whoever says, verse 6. Whoever says, whoever claims, verse 6. Verse 9, anyone who claims. Three false claims. And then he gives the true response. So we can look at it like this. False claims of knowing God. Secondly, true actions of those who really know God. Uh, And then thirdly, briefly, we're introduced what he's going to move on to. Great assurance comes from knowing Christ. False claims, true actions, great assurance. Let's look first of all at the false claims. The false claims of knowing God. So you get it three times. uh, As I say, verse 4, verse 6, verse 9. Let's look at these false claims then. Chapter 2, verse 4. Whoever says, I know him, but does not do what he commands, is a liar. And the truth is not in that person. Quite straightforward. Similarly, verse 6. Whoever claims to live in him, presumably that's God the Father, must live as Jesus did. If someone comes along and says, yeah, I'm a Christian. I, 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 I'm a Christian. I, I know God as Father. Well, do you live like Jesus did? That is, do you obey God? Do you submit to him? When you disagree with what God says, God says, whatever it is, don't get drunk, do you obey him or not? Because if you're genuine, obviously you're going to obey him. The third one is um, moves from just sort of general comments about obedience to the specific command to love believers so verse 9 anyone who claims to be in the light but hates a brother or sister is still in the darkness now john is saying look 
You do want to love your brother. Let let me pick it up from verse 7. Dear friends, I'm not writing you a new command, but an old one which you've had since the beginning. This old command is the message you've heard. I'm writing you a new command. It's truth is seen in him and you because the darkness is passing. The true light's already shining. Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates a brother or sister is still in the darkness. Now, it seems to me you can almost hear the opponent saying, you know that John? I just need this. You know John? He came along and said, you become a Christian by trusting in Jesus' death for you. And now he's got this new command, hasn't he? This new thing, which is you've got to obey and you've got to love your brothers and sisters. John keeps changing his mind. And so he says, no, no, look, what I'm writing to you is nothing new. You've had it since the beginning of the Christian life. Love one another. I mean, Jesus says that several times. Love one another. Nothing new. The only thing new to that command is a command in the Old Testament too. The only thing new to it is the depth that Jesus gives to it. So love one another is a command throughout the Bible, but Jesus adds, as I love you. So the depth of sacrifice. There's nothing new in this, says John. But verse 9, you know, there'll be some people, they claim to be in the light, but they're not. And you can tell that they're not genuine Christians, people of the light, But they're bogus. They're in darkness. How? Because they don't love their brothers and sisters at church. Now, verse 9, hates. It's a bit strong, isn't it? But I think if you pin John down, he'd say, no, it's a disposition. Anyone who has a lack of sympathy, a lack of concern, that can drift and quite easily become dislike and hatred but he's binary here that's often how he writes or he'd say look there's no twilight in this world at all it's not that if you love people then you become someone of the light a christian but rather if you're a christian of the light god is at work in you and you will love people It's that way round. But it's a very strong contrast you get in verses 10 and 11. Anyone who loves their brother and sister lives in the light, and there is nothing in them to make them stumble. But anyone who hates a brother or sister is in the darkness and walks around in the darkness. They do not know where they're going because the darkness has blinded them. What's he saying? Well, let me put it this way. Have you ever been down a mine? Um, I look out and there are many miners uh, amongst you. Uh, I used to be a school teacher and uh, one of the trips we'd often do is, um, uh, amongst other things, we'd take kids uh, in the crazy excitement of teaching them the Industrial Revolution. Uh, we'd uh, take them down a mine, an old disused mine. We didn't put them to work. It wasn't that sort of school. Um, uh, but we'd take them down a disused mine and old miners would take them down and uh, you got a group of, what are they, 13-year-olds and, uh, you know, they get the old boy saying, uh, you know, all right, if I give them a bit of a shock. And uh, you're like, yeah, um, that's fine. And uh, so you're walking down the mine and uh, you get to a, a, a he goes, oh, just hold on a minute, I want, there's something I want you to see. And he just turns off all the lights. All of them. What do the kids back about? And... Uh, he says nothing. Where's the bloke gone? 
And it's amazing how quickly bravado turns to slight fear. And then before long, because there's, uh, you know, oh, right, well, uh, well, where's the bloke gone? And uh, so people start moving around, and what can you feel? Well, you know, oi, get off me, oi, who's that? And um, well, get out of it. And I don't know why, they were, they, they was, it was in Birmingham I was teaching, when they another, <laughs> oh, get out of it. Um, was more the, uh, that sort of thing, oi, brummies. Uh, apologies to brummies. The, um, uh, but, uh, you know, they're sort of stamping on one another's toes, and very quickly it's, oi, oi, what are you doing? Get out of it. And there's sort of general angst and anger, and uh, sort of people getting irritated one another because they're a bit nervous and actually it's dark down a mine with no light on then you flick on the switch and oh would everyone calm right down sorry did I step on your toe sorry about that yeah sorry I'm sorry it was that it was that your elbow in my face yeah I'm so sorry about that and uh, kids kind of apologized and got on with it because John is saying if you're in the darkness verse 11 you don't know what you're doing If you're in the light, you can see more clearly and it's much easier to be kind to people, to love people. In the darkness, you you don't. Verse 11. You stumble. You're blinded. Do you see that sometimes? I don't want to be overly rude, but sometimes there'll be people on the fringe of church, slightly awkward on an evening where there's bound to be a few, uh, just visiting, but there's the people on the fringe and they sort of pop in every now and again, once a month, once every six weeks, and it um, seems to me they're not Christians and they're in darkness, and, and it manifests slightly like this, they're very defensive, so you'll say, uh, oh, it's lovely to see you, why are you having a go at me? I know I haven't been around much, but you know, don't have a go at me. No, it was lovely to see you. That was a sort of nice thing to say. Um, isn't, what? But it's just relationally, just a bit... <clears throat> oh, could you just give me a hand to lift this? Well, why, why me? You don't understand what's going on in my life. I've got lots of difficulties. Okay. Just, could you help me lift a table? That was what it was. Um, it's own prickliness. John's saying, look, if, if you're a Christian, you're in the light, and your disposition will be to love people. If you're not, well, your disposition is, actually you just can't see very clearly. You don't really understand your motivations quite as much. That's what he's saying. False claims of knowing God. Whoever says, whoever says, whoever says, okay? If there's no obedience, no living like Jesus, no loving people as brothers and sisters, people of darkness, that is not, Christians. He's very black and white, binary, the language John uses. Let's look at the contrast, though. By contrast, true actions of those who do know God. Let's look at the contrast, uh, the other side of that little column. John would say, look, here's why I'm encouraged that you're the real deal. Verse 3, we know that we've come to know him if we keep his commands. Verse 5, if anyone obeys God's word... Love for God is truly made complete in them. That's how we know we're in him. It's wonderful, isn't it? Assurance, you're a Christian. Yeah, John will say, yeah, look to Jesus. We'll get on with that in a moment. But do you know what? Actually, if you want assurance that you're a Christian, look at your life. And if you're obeying God, brilliant, brilliant. Just be really very encouraged with that. 
have thankful joy for that. You have a lot more assurance in the Christian life if you're cracking on with obedience. And you are, John says to his original audience, that's what you're doing. So there's a sense in which uh, a walk or your, your relationship with God is a bit similar to being uh, in a good marriage or being in love. But think of a couple like this. Uh, a couple legally married for 20 years. And they have their nighttime ritual where they say, I love you. And so every night they get into bed. And it doesn't matter what's happened during the day, uh, but they say, love you, love you. And that's it. That's what they say. That's the, they, say to every, they say it to one another every night just before uh, dropping off to sleep. Now imagine in this marriage, the, uh, the wife says to the husband, look, the one thing that annoys me more than anything else is that when we're together, you just look at your phone. And uh, we're at dinner, and you just play on your phone. And I'm talking to you, and you receive a text message. I just hate it when you don't take me seriously, and you're constantly looking at your phone. Oh, okay. And then the husband, every mealtime, gets out his phone. And whenever they're together, gets out his phone. And she says, can I have a word? Go. And um, if that's how the husband behaves, she's just not going to feel the love. You're not going to feel the love. At night, I might say, yeah, we're married. You're still married? Still married. Love you. Love you. But they're not going to feel it. By contrast, all of a sudden, the penny drops for Mr. Husband. And uh, one weekend, he picks his wife up from work on a Friday and says, away, on the Eurostar. Let us go to Paris. I don't know why he's adopted this tone of voice, but... um, (laughs) Let us uh, go to Paris. And we're on the train, and wow, this is great, and they stay in a nice hotel, and they're dancing under the stars, and midway through Saturday, she says, you know what's really lovely, I haven't even seen you on your phone. No, I left it in London, deliberately, because I do love you, and I hear you when you say you don't want that, so I wanted to come away and, and leave all that behind and just concentrate on you, and at that moment, she says, I feel your love. I feel more in love with you than before. Yeah, we've been married for 20 years, and yeah, we roll on pretty well, but I feel in love a lot more. Now, I would want to be slightly careful with that. But it's no great surprise in the Christian life. You can say, I'm a Christian. Hello, God. Hello, God. Good night, God. Good night, God. Good night. And you can live the sort of Christian life a bit like that. But when you crack on with obedience, and you think, look, I'd like to do this, but God says do that, I'm going to do that. And I know that's the right thing. You just feel, you know, you know a lot more. Is that subjective? Yeah, kind of. But that's what John is talking about. That's how you know that you know him in obedience. Now, let me tackle one misunderstanding on that. John is not expecting perfection. So when he says, you know, we know that we've come to know him if we keep his commands, verse 3, verse 5, if anyone obeys his word, love for God is making yeah. He's not expecting perfection. If you were here last week, we looked at uh, chapter 1, verse 10 as one example. If, chapter 1, verse 10, if we claim we've not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. Look, you're not going to do it perfectly. You are going to get it wrong. You are going to sin, says John. But what is your disposition? Is it towards obedience or not? Is your ambition, your disposition, your desire for obedience or not? That's what he's stressing. Not perfect obedience, but habitual obedience. 
let's, um, let's uh, uh, to, to return then to the issue of uh, loving brothers and sisters in particular, verses uh, 8 to 11. Here's the specific application that he really focuses on, loving others at church. Now, verse 8 is a pretty dense sentence. Let's see if we can understand it. John says, I am writing you, I am writing you a new command, that is, love one another as I have loved you, the depth of sacrifice. Yeah, that, that, I am. Verse 8, its truth is seen in him. Well, yeah, Jesus really did love us. He, he came from heaven to earth to die on behalf of sinful people like you and me. Yeah, it's seen in him, that love. Yeah, undoubtedly, that's true. Verse 8, and that truth is seen in you. Because the darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. What does that mean? Well, it could be two things. It could just be true of this world, that Christ is risen and and it's becoming more light. But I think more likely he's talking about in the life of an individual believer. If you become a Christian, within you darkness is fading and the light is growing. You're becoming more like Christ. Our garden is, uh, I say garden, uh, yard, it's about the size of the drum cage. And um, uh, in it, we're slightly northwest-facing, technically. Uh, I think west-facing, the estate agents would say. But, yeah, northwest-facing. And uh, so we just get, in the summer months, when the sun is high, uh, we do get a little bit of sun in it from about 12 uh, o'clock as the sun comes round. And it's quite nice. You can sit there, and uh, the the garden is in darkness. And then about 12 o'clock onwards... It doesn't make that noise, the sun. Um, uh, that's just for your benefit. The, um, the sun comes round uh, and the darkness goes and the light comes. And John is saying that that is the truth that's happening in every believer, genuinely. The darkness is passing away and the true light is shining within you. This command to love others, it will be seen in healthy Christians because Christ is at work in you. You will do this. You are doing this, says John. The normal Christians will love one another. And that is a wonderful thing. Anyone can love PLUs. Love that phrase. You know, people like us. Anyone can love PLUs. But Christians, and the Christian church is a place where we love the non-PLUs. Sounds like a government agency, doesn't it? Or uh, I read this, I thought it was just lovely this week. If we can care for the tiresome members of our church, those who provoke us, irritate us, take us for granted, never listen to us, then we know that God is supernaturally at work in our congregation. And many of us do. There's a wonderful honesty to the Bible here, isn't there? That people can be tiresome, foolish, self-centered, annoying. Uh, and yet within the church you learn to love them. That's, the, that's because you're the real deal, says John. It's a lovely little practice at church. Think of the person, just, you think of the person you find most irritating, most demanding, most annoying. And love them. It's great. It's a great challenge to do that. And again, you won't do it perfectly. You might have a go, think, oh, okay, I'm going to love whoever it may be, Ben Anderson. I'm going to love, you know, 
It happens if you sit in the front row. But everyone sit in the front row. It's a good place to sit. Don't do it. The, um, should go for someone in the back row. It's Luke Baldwin's at the back. It's very difficult to love Luke Baldwin, who sits at the back. Um, but I'm going to do it. But you'll never be perfect. You'll fall down. You will still find him unbelievably annoying. Or the person that works for you, whoever it may be. But you will do that, says John. You'll have the ability to do that. Because true believers do love their brothers and sisters. They just do. Oh, it takes effort. Yeah, of course. But that's the power of God. The, the, the darkness is fading in you. The light is rising in you. Because you're the real deal, says John. There are false claims of knowing God. There are true actions that the people who are genuine believers, they get on and obey the Lord habitually, not perfectly. They love their brothers and sisters. But then lastly, look, great assurance comes from knowing Christ. Let's turn to look at these uh, strange verses 12 to 14. And I think here the emphasis is less upon looking in and more looking up. So undoubtedly, chapter 2, verses 3 to 11, uh, uh, am I a genuine Christian? John says, well, look at your life. Verses 3 to 11, look at your life. And you'll see obedience and you'll, and you'll see love for other brothers and sisters and, and, and you'll be, feel assured that you're, you're the real deal. Verses 12 to 14 are a bit different. It's much more sense of, no, look at what Christ has done. So verses 12 to 14, they're not descriptive. Excuse me, they're not prescriptive, they are descriptive. Here is John's assessment of his readers. Two sets of three statements, I'll read them. Two sets, three statements. Dear children, dear fathers, young men. Uh, why does he go for those three? Dear children is the thing he uses throughout the letter, 14 odd times. Dear children, dear children, that's how he writes to his audience. Uh, fathers, young men, I think that's a sort of a catch-all. He's trying to catch all categories uh, within it. I think that's what's going on. But three encouraging descriptions, therefore, I think, of all believers. First, chapter, uh, verse 12. I'm writing to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. That's wonderful. Your sins have been forgiven. I'm writing to you, and I think you can have absolute assurance, because you, you know what Jesus has done for you. And you love him. You know that your sins are forgiven, past tense, taken place. So don't, John would say, don't hear me talk about obedience and think, oh, well, do you know what? Um, am I loving enough? Am I, is my loveometer? No, think Jesus has loved me and then try and love others. But knowing that forgiveness is a wonderful thing. I spent some time with my uh, father uh, this week and uh, he's near the end of his life, and so there's a bit of reminiscing going on uh, in various conversations, and uh, one we chatted through. Uh, I was about 15 or 16. My sister had already gone off to university, and uh, mum and dad went to visit uh, some relations for the weekend. And so I did, the, I mean, it's just a rite of passage, is it? I just did that wonderfully wise thing of a 15, 16-year-old and invited a load of friends around. Uh, without my parents' knowledge. And of course, if you ever did that yourself, yeah, I'll become popular, I'll throw a party, and you just spend the whole evening stressed out of your brain because don't smoke in there, don't drop that there, don't touch mum's vase, and it's a horrible thing, and it's just the whole evening is miserable, 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 and um, you wake up on the Sunday morning and just think, <gasps> the kitchen door is off its hinges and smashed. <gasps> 
that carpet has got fag butts in it that aren't coming out. <gasps> and it's, whatever it was, 1989, and there are no shops open on a Sunday to even try and do anything about it, even if I had any DIY skill. <gasps> and you think, okay, mum and dad said they'd be back about five on Sunday. I can clean some things, but otherwise I'm just going to sit here for the next six hours or and freak out, thinking they're very house-proud. They go nuts if I drop a crumb on the lounge carpet, and now there are cherry bombs everywhere on the lounge carpet, and the door is in two pieces when it's clearly meant to be one. <laughs> and it's just one of those miserable experiences where for six hours I'm sat there going, I'm going to die. My father is going to kill me. And they arrive home, and my mother is the more dramatic of the two, so walks in, and just sort of goes nuts. And my father is the sort of more phlegmatic of the two, and just sort of studies everything, looks at everything. Do you want to tell me what happened here, then? Uh, Chat it through. What do you want to say to me? I am so, so sorry. What have you learned? Don't have parties in your absence. Yeah, talk to us. You could do this sort of thing if we're around. That might be okay. Right. Anything else you want to say to me? I am sorry. Okay, here's what you need to know. I forgive you. How much do you think it's going to cost to put it all right, Dad? No, you haven't heard me. I forgive you. I'll sort it out. All oh, right. I'll go to bed then. I'll steer clear of your mother for a while. <laughs> you remember anything? Wow, that was just, I was stressed, stressed, stressed to know that forgiveness and for my father to take it. And John says, Now, Christians, you know that your sins have been forgiven on account of the name of Jesus, that is, the work of Jesus, him dying in your place, him taking your sin and God's judgment upon it onto himself, him giving you his perfection. He's paid for you. You know that. That's very wonderful. You do know that, don't you? Yeah, you do, says John. I'm writing you, dear children, your sins have been forgiven. Second little thing, verse 13. I'm writing to you fathers. Again, I think this is sort of catch-all fathers, younger sons, I think it's all believers. I'm writing to you because you know him who's from the beginning. I'm writing to you, sorry, yeah, I'm writing to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. Chapter 1, verse 1, that's Jesus. He's the one who was from the beginning, who lived from the beginning. You know him. I'm writing to you fathers. You know him. You do know Jesus. You really do. Sometimes you might go to a party uh, and uh, look around the room and think, oh, I don't know anyone. I thought Billy was going to be here. He's not here. I got here too early. Oh, rats. And you look around shuffling and think, oh, oh, dear. Oh, dear, oh, dear. But if the host then comes along and makes a fuss of you and says, I need to make it up, Luke Baldwin! <laughs> and embraces you and says, hey, come in. Great to see you. Belong here. <gasps> Wonderful. 
John is saying, you, you know him. You know him. Of course you know him. Because you know you've been forgiven by him. Wonderful. Wonderful. Third little thing. I'm writing to you young men because you've overcome the evil one. You get the same pattern again. So uh, verse 14, I write to you, dear children, you know the father. Uh, uh, father, I write to you fathers, you know him who's from the beginning, precisely the same as before. And then this third one, you get a bit more detail second time round. I write to you young men because you're strong and the word of God lives in you and you've overcome the evil one. Again, you have overcome the evil one. John is very content. We're talking about there being a malevolent personal force. The devil, you just, just there in the Bible. You can't get away from it. You, you've overcome him. What? Past tense? How is that true? No, I'm just talking about you have done this. Because you've trusted Jesus and the word of God dwells in you, you've overcome him. You, look, you do know, do you? The, the, the devil only has really two weapons. Temptation and accusation. Accusation. I'm not sure you're really a Christian. You're not really a Christian, are you? Not the way you live. I mean, you've, you know, you were listening to him this evening saying, you love the awkward people. You don't do that, do you? You're pretty self-absorbed. Accusation and temptation. Oh, you'll have more fun if you disobey God. Those are the devil's two chief weapons. And John is saying, no, if the word of God lives in you, you can overcome both of those. Accusation comes you're not really a Christian, you don't love enough, you're not good enough. No, but I trust in Jesus, so you can naff off. Because I do trust in him, and temptation comes, you'll have more fun if you disobey God. And you say, no, that's not true. If the word of God dwells in you, you can resist temptation, you can resist accusation. You need those, the word of God to dwell in you to do that. And you've done that, I've seen you do that, says John. You have all you need. Try and pull it together again. How do I know I'm a Christian? How do I know that I know him relationally? That I'm in fellowship with God the Father, God the Son? How do I know that I know him? Well, in this whole section, chapter 1, verse 5 to chapter 2, 11, two things. Again, last time was, look, there are people of light, there are people of darkness. People of the light confess their sin and trust Jesus and say, I need him because I'm a sinner. Here tonight, if you do that, have confidence that you're a genuine Christian. Yeah, I'm a sinner and I need Jesus. I need him to die in my place. Yeah, when you, that's a great mark of being the real deal. And here tonight, uh, how, do I, how do I know I'm a Christian? Well, look at your life, John would say. And genuine Christians, of course, because the Spirit comes and dwells within you. The Spirit changes you. Darkness goes. Light comes. So you start to obey God in a way you never did before you were a Christian. And you love your brothers and sisters. You just do those things. How do I know if I know him? Well, there are more, there's more things you might want to say. But here he says those two. Look up. Look up. Do you think I'm only a Christian because of what Jesus has done for me? Died in my place. Look up and then look in. Am I obedient? Not perfectly, but habitually trying. Do I love others? Not perfectly. I'm having a go. Look up, look in. And then look up again because we don't obey. 
perfectly. We don't love perfectly. But John's ambition is he wants believers to know that they know him, to feel liberated by that, know the joy of forgiveness, the pleasure of obedience. I want you to know that you know him, he says. Let me lead us in prayer. Father, for most people in the Christian life, there are times when we ask these questions. Am I the real deal? There are times when people ask us, I'm not certain if I'm a Christian. Father, would we be wise doctors in this? Would we help people diagnose why they're asking these questions? Is there a big area of disobedience in their life that's unsettling them? Is it that they're just tender conscience and always feel guilty? Father, would we be wise doctors of the soul and father then would we look in these two great directions would we look up at the lord jesus christ know that in his death for sin we can be forgiven anything we've done wrong would it therefore be a pleasure to us to confess our sins and cling to him and would we be encouraged would others encourage us with the change in our lives with the obedience in our lives with the love in our lives so that we'd be absolutely certain if we're Christians that we know we know him. Uh, Father, in a room like this, I, I, I can't prescribe for everyone. Father, please would you be at work by your spirit, causing those who are still in darkness, actually, who've never really trusted in Christ to recognize that. For those who have done in the past, to be greatly encouraged and know that they know you. Father, please be about that work. In Jesus' name, amen.